Hype Beast Radio. I'm Jeff Staple, and this is The Business of Hype, a show about creative entrepreneurs, brand builders, innovators, and the realities behind the dreams they've built. Streetwear and what was labeled as urban fashion back in the day has come a long way. What took shape in the 90s has progressed to today with completely new looks, silhouettes, and aesthetics. But what stayed consistent were some of the people behind the scenes moving through the different eras, helping people innovate, change, and keep up with the times. This week, we're going to break down the timeline of streetwear through this veteran's perspective and dig deep on his extensive experience in sales and merchandising. And we're going to go through why having a design and fashion business isn't just about having great artists and designers. There's a whole other aspect to creating a successful brand, and this man is an A-plus example of that. And he also manages to figure out how to have fun while doing it. Get ready for a ton of gems as we go down memory lane with today's Business of Hype guest, the co-founder of The Foundation, Mr. Dre Hayes. My name is Dre Hayes. I am one of the co-founders of The Foundation. Mm-hmm. We were, uh, I guess we've evolved now. We're a uh, a company that owns, licenses, and distributes different brands in fashion and, let's say, lifestyle, home good, tech, and accessories. Okay. So now you, because that is a newer definition. That is a newer right. definition. Maybe say to everyone what the previous iteration of foundation was, because that's what they might know it as. Okay. Uh, <laughs> previous iteration uh, of the foundation, we were a sales and consulting agency. Mm-hmm. We've always, you know, our cards were brand architects. Mm-hmm which is an interesting title, something that I coined a long time ago. And, you know, it's myself and I have three other business partners, uh, myself, Antoine Freeman, Ari Langsdorf, and Daniel Yagard. Um, And, you know, we just always have seemed to be involved with the right brands. Mm -hmm. You know, and a lot of the brands that we've been involved with, we launched. We were there from day one. Right Now, sales is obviously something that people will come to us for. But we've all we've always been heavily involved in merchandising. Um, some of the brands that we work with, they came to us like when we did Hell's Bells. Um, when we first started working with Lonnie, mm-hmm. she literally had three T-shirts on the rack mm-hmm. when we started. So it was like pre Hell's Bells years ago, and then help get the financing, and then uh, help with the setup, and you know, and then the brand you know took Became off. Became a real brand, yeah. yeah. And and you know, and all the talent was there. Mm-hmm. So it's. You know, we've we've been involved with so many brands. It's, yeah. it's crazy. Try to, um, you know, you live and breathe this industry so mm-hmm. hard. But imagine you're talking to someone who's not in fashion at all, right? Mm-hmm. Explain sales and merchandising. Okay. Uh, well, as sales, we're the company that a brand would hire to go represent them to sell product to the retailers. Mm-hmm. So we're the gateway between the brand and the retailer. Okay. So and, I'm stu- I'm stupid kid here. Okay. Why wouldn't brand just do that themselves? Well, part of the reason is a brand, they need people to have an expertise in sales. Mm-hmm. And sometimes when a brand launches, you know, yes, a brand can internalize the sales organization, but mm-hmm. it's easier for them to go hire 
a company that does this and pay them commission. So they externalize it. So then they know what that hard fixed cost is. Mm -hmm. And then they have these people go out or us, we would go out and we would sell the product to the retailer. And it's just a clean transaction. Then also they may need a sales agency that's reputable mm-hmm. that can help get them into the the right stores. Right. Cause you or have give them the appointments because the we Rolodex. have the relationships. Yeah. Yeah. We have the Rolodex, we have the relationships. Right. You could hire a great sales guy, but he's just cold calling all these stores. Exactly right. right. And then on the merchandising side, mm-hmm. that is helping get the line together. So from uh let's say how many styles need to be in the line or helping them coordinate the colors. Um, because sometimes, you know, you may have a designer and even the most talented designers aren't necessarily great merchandisers. Yeah. They need somebody to help them um, organize yep. that creativity and and help put together the line. Yeah. So we've mm-hmm. always done quite a bit of merchandising. That's always been a strong background trait of, of ours as a company. Yeah. Merchandising is kind of like the unsung secret weapon hero in any successful brand, right? Like many people from the outside think, you're a talented designer. Everything that you design makes it. <laughs> yeah. Right? That's <laughs> So explain the reality now. Oh, nah. Like, there's a ton of product that gets dropped. Yeah. Some, sometimes you have really talented designers that have all this creative energy, and they can't organize the collection without, like, like the merchandising is a map. Mm-hmm. So it's like you create a map, like we would go to one of our design partners and they'd be like, all right, we need a merch tree. We'll do the merch tree. So like maybe the line will have 36 pieces. We'll have this many pieces per delivery. You have mm-hmm. this many pants, this many wovens, this many T-shirts, this many hats. And and then you have to make sure that the things coordinate together so that it can all be sold. Right. Because you could have a line that's full of just great pieces, all individual pieces, mm-hmm but it doesn't really go together, so it's hard to sell. Now, that's not to say that there aren't lines where there really it's all individual pieces and there is no merchandising. Yeah, that's a concept. There's not that many of those, though. That yeah. That is a very unique thing. Yeah, it's like an art project almost. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like, I guess, like making an album or like putting a sports team together. You can't have 10 all-stars. You need like the point guard, the rebounder, the defenseman, right? Like, Oh, oh yeah, it's funny. And <laughs> you know what I say is... Everybody can't be Kobe, meaning what you just said right there. You know, you need a team to win Mm -hmm. and everybody on the team can't be Kobe. But I take that and I apply that to everything. Mm -hmm. That's like even even with a brand, right? You may have a talented designer that wants that limelight, Mm -hmm. that that has it. But then you may have somebody that has the ambition but don't even have it. Or can't deal with the pressure, mm-hmm. you know. That that's what I mean when I say yeah. everybody can't be Kobe. Yeah, you everyone know? has strengths and weaknesses, yes, you know. Absolutely. And that to merchandising's point of view, that even comes down to your spring summer twenty twenty collection. There's bangers, but then there's sleepers that, you know, will just be the cash cow, you know what I mean? Like Absolutely. Yeah. And everything's about balance, right? right? So even if you're going to have like your window pieces, mm-hmm. you know, obviously you may look at the line. Sometimes, you know, we all pick wrong. Yeah. But, you know, usually in a collection, you have the window piece, the idea that, you know, this is going to be a loss leader is not going to sell as mm-hmm. much. But then you also got to have your tried and true, the things that are going to ring the register. Yeah. It's going to keep you alive. Right. Right. OK. So thanks for that definition. Now, your sales pitch, is it that the brand will tend to save money by using a company like the foundation versus hiring in-house salespeople? I don't use it as I'll say that the company will save money. 
I just say that if somebody was to hire us to sell their brand, they're just getting the best. Uh-huh. That's the whole thing. Right. The it's value like of the it. value right. of having us sell the product. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes there's companies that, that have needed it. Like at one point, we repped Under Armour, mm-hmm. repped and consulted Under Armour for about three or four years. Mm-hmm. And it was right around the time it was before... Uh, Golden State had won the championship right mm-hmm. when the Curry sneakers started to take off okay. and they were launching UAS. As a mm-hmm. matter of fact, they came to us when UAS was a concept. Which they is had, Under Armour Sportswear, right? Which was yeah. Under Armour Sportswear. Right. And they hadn't even, they were still ideating and creating what it would become, mm-hmm. right? And, they, you know, when they came to visit us, it was about UAS. And then, you know, we took them down to Kith, took them to some stores. They didn't even know about this, right? Yeah. It was like, it was another world for them. Right. And the idea that this business existed or there were these customers we go after, because, you know, Under Armour is a big business. Yeah. They were a multi-billion dollar business. Mm-hmm. You know, so much of it was built in Dick Sporting Goods and let's say Sports Authority, yep. the, the defunct Sports Authority. Right. But their business was built on performance athletics. Mm-hmm. And the thing that was missing is they didn't have lifestyle. Right. So right around the time, and the Curry was getting some energy, Foot Locker was selling some, so they saw an opportunity there. And then they also saw an opportunity to do lifestyle. Yeah. So we ended up working with them. And obviously, Under Armour has tons of money. Mm-hmm. They could have built an in-house yeah, staff. totally. But it was easier for them to go hire a credible agency that's outside, that has the relationships, and it also gives them credibility. Because even though they're Under Armour, they're big, they got all this money, mm-hmm. when they would go to all the boutique retailers and and they're going to go and push lifestyle, everybody would look at them and be like, okay. You're, you're, you're the jocks. Yeah. <laughs> you right. know, this this you're not known for this. Uh-huh. So the first way to give them some credibility is go hire the foundation. Right. And then the foundation be the agency of record for mm-hmm. them. So all of a sudden, people are like, oh, they hired the foundation. Oh, so what's going on? It yeah. Immediately, it, it sparks it people's serious. interest. Credibility and expertise. There are a multitude of reasons why a brand would hire an agency, but those two are some of the most important ones. Credibility and expertise. Now, it doesn't matter if we're talking about advertising, marketing, PR, production, or sales. If a brand wants to grow, expand their market, or reach a new customer, sometimes it's hard to do it on their own internally. Sometimes it makes more sense to bring in an outside expert. And I use the sports analogy here with Dre, and I'll use one again. Sure, you can keep an eye on a kid from high school draft him out of college and nurture him through the pros till you have your very own all-star. Or you could just sign one from the outside. There's nothing wrong with either method. And in fact, I'd argue that some of the pros and cons between sports and fashion are actually the same. So yes, a multi-billion dollar corporation like Under Armour can create and hire an internal team to cover their own needs for sure. But when working within a new territory, They needed to tap someone who has the, wait for it, credibility and expertise. All right, from a financial standpoint, let's look at it from both sides. It can be cost effective because instead of paying to keep a headcount, their salaries, their benefits, their office setups and needs, you're contracting the workout and paying a likely smaller monthly consulting fee along with a percentage of sales. Which means if the agency doesn't get any sales, you don't have to pay them their commissions. It's up to someone like Dre and his agency to determine how they want to pay the staff. In my experience, 
I would argue that hiring a full-time team of four people internally might cost the same as working with an agency, where possibly you might get 10 plus people and their networks at your disposal. The other big plus is that the agency is existing out in the real world, hearing, seeing, and experiencing the realities of the industry. Whereas internal employees typically are guilty of drinking the corporate Kool-Aid and don't have the same wide scope of experiences an outside agency person has. But again, what's important is that going to an agency is beneficial because you need what they can do and what they know. Now, in the past five, 10 years, there's been an influx of large commercial brands wanting to cash in on the streetwear and sneaker industry. An industry that has roots in multiple subcultures and small niche communities. What bubbled into a lifestyle has really become a global phenomenon and a clear opportunity for companies. And like many other subcultures, authenticity is crucial for tapping into this world. In order for some of these companies to get moving in the right direction, they need to be talking to the right people in the right circles. So seeking the help of someone like Dre and the foundation is crucial because they know this space inside and out. You mentioned you have co-founders. Mm -hmm. Before you guys founded the foundation, what were you doing? Oh, man. I was, uh, I was in Virginia. Uh-huh. I'm actually from Virginia Beach. Okay. So uh, I was working for a company called Azure Denim, yep. which was an urban... A-Z-Z-U-R-E. A-Z-Z-U-R-E, which was an urban fashion denim brand. Mm -hmm. Probably one of the first, not even probably, the first premium urban denim brand. Okay. Where we were selling jeans that were over a hundred dollars. Mm -hmm. You know, prior to that, yeah, you had Parasuco, but Parasuco was Parasuco. That was like a true denim brand from Canada. Yeah. Um, you know, and I did Azuri Denim. I was there. I, I started working with them six months after they launched. Mm -hmm. There's a company called RP55 that's mm -hmm. based in Virginia and they're still around to this day. They uh they own a coup and hustle gang. Mm -hmm. They're our partners in Billionaire Boys Club and Ice Cream for the US business. Mm -hmm. I went to go work with them, and back then they owned RP55 and Azure. Okay. And uh, I was there for five and a half years. I was the Midwest and Mid-Atlantic salesman. I did just PA, just the state of PA, <laughs> and I had the whole Midwest. But when I first got there, interesting enough, I was kind of in production, right? Uh -huh. And one of the owners, he, uh, he, he told me he didn't think I could be a salesman. And you got to remember, this is the Garmental sales era. So back in the Garmental sales era, there was no young people no minorities, no women. Mm -hmm. It was all older old gentlemen, <laughs> old Jewish garmental salesmen. Right. You know, actually there were a few Korean mm -hmm. garmental salesmen as well, but that was the business. There, were, there was very little of anything else. Yeah. And when I would go on, they would send me on the road for RP55. This is before Azuri. So when I first got there, I wasn't even doing Azuri. Okay. Azuri existed, but I wasn't doing anything with Azuri. I was working with RP55. And they would send me on the road with the older sales reps. And I was like the kid who was of the culture that could represent it, right? Right. And they would send me out. And it was good. I got the experience. I got to go on the road. Um, I was traveling. I was doing trade shows, like the caravan trade shows. Mm -hmm. and uh, But I, I was excelling because I worked hard. And for whatever reason, when I worked, people listened and I was able to write orders. And it was funny because I remember Mike Shockett, now my boss, 
I, I hate when somebody tells me I can't do something. He told me he didn't think I could be a salesman because he thought I was too nice, which is interesting because <laughs> most people that know me would never say that. But <laughs> it, but it was funny. So my my goal was to prove him wrong, uh-huh. and I proved him wrong. I eventually, uh, I mean, within a short amount of time, I became a sales rep for them. I was actually, I had the biggest territory. I was doing the most volume. Yeah. And, and to this day, we joke about it. I said, Mike, remember when you told me you didn't think I could be a salesman? But it's, you know, it's just the idea of somebody telling you you can't do something. Right. I've always been that guy. Like, you know, I, I'm, it's just going to make me try harder. So you were that in-house salesperson. You were just repping their internal brands. When, yes. When they first hired me, and the structure was very different than what, how I pay my people now. But I was like a hybrid rep. So I had a salary. Mm-hmm. And then I had a commission, like okay. a low percentage on commission. Okay. So I did that when I became a rep with them probably for the first 18 months. Mm-hmm. And then this is during the independent rep era, right? When you had the independent regional reps. So I was like, you know what? I want to be an independent rep. So I would forego the salary and them paying for all my expenses to just being a full commission rep. But much higher commission. But much higher commission. So at that point, it was double the commission. Okay. So, But that's I, a huge gamble because you only eat what you actually kill. Yeah, you only eat what you kill. Yeah. But it worked out for me. So I basically Damn. became an independent rep. I mean, I could tell you I was... So I went to college to be... Uh, I, I, I majored in political science. So uh-huh. I have a degree in political science and a minor in philosophy and a minor in fashion. The fashion one I just got because... Because <laughs> you were bored. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, because I was working in fashion yeah. prior to that because I was in retail and I was a buyer. Okay. So I had started off young in that part of the business. And uh, when I before I graduated from college, I, I was actually... I wanted to be a lawyer. Mm-hmm. But I loved fashion because I had been in fashion since I was in high school. Yeah. So I was like, you know what? Instead of going to law school... I'm just going to stay in fashion, right? And uh, I I was making such good money Uh at an early age. It was crazy. By the time I was 25, I had made more money than, I mean, I would have never made that much money as a lawyer. (laughs) Not even at that point. I mean, because, you know, you you start looking at old school territories when you have a rep that's, you know, let's say a six to $10 million territory, you're on an mm-hmm. old school rep structure, you're making good money. So I was what was the commission back then? 6% commission. 6% on 10 million, six to 10 million. Dollar territory. Okay. So as a, you know, and I'm still a kid. Yeah. I'm young, you right. know, and you know, and granted, I got lucky, you know. No, you, you, hustled, you, you were a good salesperson. No, no, yeah. no, no. But anybody that says that they don't get lucky is full of it. And I always say this. You know what? No matter how hard you work, no matter what goes on, sometimes the luck is the timing. Mm-hmm. Everybody gets lucky. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter how talented you are, how creative you are, you know, timing is an opportunity. That's luck. There's things that happen, things line up. So it doesn't mean you haven't earned your luck or you haven't worked hard. You know, I never say that to take away from what people do. But luck but is involved. Luck yeah. is always involved. And what was the lucky moment of this? Was it the era? Was that what was lucky for well, you? Yeah, I was in the right era. Mm-hmm. I, Look, I, I feel like in my career, things have happened to me. I've been there at the right time. Mm-hmm. So, like for example, I went to RP fifty five at the right time. I was it was a, it was a time when there was a transition, a light transition of where they needed to have somebody younger that was in there yeah. to represent the brand. So I was there. So then I did good when I was helping the the, the garmental reps with RP fifty five and Missouri was launching. So then I got a chance to do Azuri because the rep that they hired, they weren't happy with them. So they got rid of them. Uh-huh. And at the beginning, they just, well, before they even got rid of them, they just gave me Michigan. I had one state. Okay. 
They let him keep all the rest of the Midwest. They didn't get rid of him fully yet. They didn't yeah, get yeah, rid of him yeah. fully. So then in Michigan, I started, the business was growing. Uh-huh. Then they gave me PA. So there was, there was another gentleman there that had, uh, he had the whole Mid-Atlantic Territory, but I used to go on the road with the rep because there was a PA only rep. Yeah. So I used to go on the road with that rep. So I knew the retailers in PA. So then they gave me PA. Mm-hmm. And the whole time I was at Azuri, my top selling states were PA and Michigan, the first two states I got. Uh-huh. Well, doing so well in those states ended up giving me the whole rest of the Midwest. Right. And that's how I got the win. Yeah. But I'll even give you another example. I started off in retail. So I was 17 years old, right? Mm-hmm. And I, uh, you know, as a kid, I wanted a job in the mall, yeah. right? So I had just got a job at this retailer. It was called A&M back then. They used to have, this before, you know, they didn't have sneaker boutiques then. Mm-hmm. There were no sneaker boutiques. This is no. 94. There's so only Foot like Locker a, and Athletes yeah. Foot, right? So it was like a neighborhood family footwear store, yeah. right? And it was, it was actually close to my house. So I could walk to work. I went to orientation. I went and did everything. But prior to that, I had applied in the mall. So this store, Legends, calls me. The I'm store is called Legends. The store is called Legends. Okay. So they don't exist anymore. But back then, they had about 26 stores, right? And they were sneaker-based stores, sneakers, and uh, sporting goods, mm-hmm. right? So they had boxing gloves, like heavy bags. <laughs> okay, okay. But they sold sneakers. and But it was in Military Circle Mall in Norfolk, Virginia. So it was... Oh, I get to work in Military Circle, which was like a cool mall. That's uh-huh. where, you know, all the girls would go and hang out. And it was just like a cool mall to work at. So I went, I went and applied for the job, even though I was supposed to start the new job in like three days. Yeah. So when I went and applied for the job, um, interesting enough, one of my business partners, Antoine, mm-hmm. was an assistant manager there. One of my business partners in the foundation. Right. So when worked I got at Legends. worked at Legends, okay. was an assistant manager there. Mm-hmm. So when I got interviewed by by the manager, and they had to pick the employees, they interviewed several people. He chose me because I had a lot of work experience. I had always worked since I was like thirteen years old. I was a paper boy. I worked in restaurants. I did every everything, whatever. I just wanted to work. Mm-hmm. He ended up picking me. That's luck. Yeah. So he ended up picking me for this job because I had work experience. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, 25 years later, we're still business partners and yeah. we're in business together. But like you think about the things that happened, it, yeah. it started there. So even working there, you know, I'm working, I'm taking everybody's hours, I'm in the mall, this is a great job. All of a sudden, um, FUBU and Echo and uh, what else was around back then? Rego Sport and Moco and Dada, like all of these urban brands. This is right. the beginning, Mecca, right? When it's right. Mecca. Mecca yeah. was around, Fat Farm was around, yeah. but the first brand was FUBU. Mm-hmm. So one of our... Reps, Garmento sales rep comes in to sell the owner of the brand. I'm there. I'm mm-hmm. working in the afternoon. He brings me over, asks me what I think. So I get to give him my opinion. Yeah. And that was the beginning of me becoming a buyer. So by the time I, before I graduated from high school, I was already buying brands. I was buying Dada. I was uh, the the owner and the and his uh, the manager. Mm-hmm. They would, they would take me to look at the Nike or the Clarks or anything that was going on. To so get I, your eye and your To get opinion. my eye. This is before you graduated high this school. This is before I graduated from high school. So you think about being in the right place at the right time. Yeah. That's luck. So even during the whole time I was in college, I was a buyer for this chain of stores. And at any given time, I mean, I would be buying for up to 16 stores. I was getting in the car, going to New York, mm-hmm. you know, visiting showrooms. I mean, this is great. And, you know, I'm in, I'm in college. Sometimes I would miss school so yeah. I could go to Magic. Well, back then, even before they had Magic and Project, there was no Project. It was Magic. Uh-huh. But before Magic, there was Super Show. Uh-huh. And that was in Atlanta. Yeah, right. Yeah. So 
like just the experience and Damn. you know that was like getting a degree mm -hmm. so i got to be a buyer and a manager of a of a sneaker based chain so the store shifted over from sporting goods to sneakers and let's say urban fashion and mm -hmm. myself and antoine instrument on that yeah we did all the buying right. so when we first got there sergio Tatini was around that's what's so interesting you look at all these brands today. Sergio Tatini right? was there. Feli was there. <laughs> was champion Triple Fat there? Goose, Champion. Oh, right. yeah. We sold Champion, Russell, all today of that. Today basically a 90s store all over it's again. It's a 90s <laughs> store all over again. We had we had all of those brands there. Right. You know, And Up Against the Wall was still around. That wow. was our competition. And yeah. then DTLR came into the mall. Like, this is what was going on right. during that era. And then this store became the sneaker store mm -hmm. of what you look at urban-based retailers now or... Let's say these specialty stores, that's where a lot of these stores came from, the ones that existed before, before mm -hmm. the new retailers started coming up. And then, you know, you got to remember, like, sneaker culture was born in the 90s. Yeah. All the retros that everybody picks up and wants mm -hmm. to buy, they all come from the 90s. Yeah, they were birthed then. They yeah. were birthed there, like Air Max 95s. Mm -hmm. Air Force you know, One, yeah. Air Force Ones, all the Jordan retros. We sold all those. I remember when the Air the Max The first 90s, time they came out, though. The right? first time. The gray and lime green Air Max 95s, we got 11 pairs. I remember. And so we worked in a mall when it was like a, a Norfolk inner city type mall. So, you know, you, you would have like the corner boys in there, you mm -hmm. know, shoe came in, sold all 11 pairs in one day. But it's not like today where people are lined up because they knew the sneaker was coming out. Yeah. Sneaker just dropped uh -huh. and customers were coming Walk in, in and yeah. this is the new shoe and it was $140, which back then was insanely expensive mm -hmm. for a pair of sneakers. Gray and lime green sold all eleven pairs in one day, uh -huh. and the guys that bought them, they were the corner boys. Yeah. All of them bought them, <laughs> and and it's crazy. And I think back, and then you know, then you had the blue one, and you had the red one, yeah, and then you had the Jordans, and then that was that was around the time. Remember when the patent leather Jordans came out, and everybody was wearing them to prom? Mm -hmm. Like I vividly remember all of that because yeah. you know I was there and I was at retail when it came out the first time, not the reissues. I mean, that was <laughs> my life. So I worked in retail from. 94 until 99 and i just think about everything that came out how much culture was around right i mean how much culture was birthed yeah yeah during that time it's crazy i'm sorry dre i wish i said this to you while we were in person but i really beg to differ with you here you call it luck but i see it as having vision Back then, it was a completely different apparel industry, and the culture surrounding those brands wasn't the same. What Dre made sure of was that in every opportunity, his eye and insights were recognized and valued. And because of that, he was being treated with respect and money, even as just a wee teenager. This, of course, would serve to be a precursor for his career to come. What I really appreciate about Dre and his story is that he never discredits the importance of timing when it comes to his success. You can be the most talented person in the world and have the best ideas, but all that stands in the way can merely be timing. It's astonishing because a lot of times the only reason why those who catch a break is simply because they had the patience to go on. We have so many different people on the Business of Hype podcast in so many different industries. And what comes up often is this idea of being in the right place at the right time. But as I mentioned, I don't think that's luck per se. I think that's perseverance. Imagine for a moment you were stuck out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean for days. And finally, someone comes out of nowhere and rescues you. 
It'd be easy to say, oh, I was so lucky that someone found me. But you also needed the perseverance to stay alive day after day, hour after hour, so that when that person came, you were actually alive to witness it. That's not just luck, my friends. And the sooner you come to that realization, the sooner you unlock one of life's best secrets. You mentioned a couple of times the word garmento. Yeah. What the fuck is a garmento? I mean, I know, but like <laughs> explain to someone who doesn't know, what is a garmento that you that you kind of usurped? Like oh, Okay, yeah. so you know, the garmento salesmen, they were the professional salesmen. Mm-hmm. Like and, and what's interesting is I have so much respect for those salesmen because those guys were my mentors, mm-hmm. right? The level of professionalism was was unreal, yeah. right? So even when you think about, let's say, urban street fashion, mm-hmm. hip hop, even though a lot of these guys were like older guys. Uh, wearing like, suits. Wearing but, suits. Right, but selling but, FUBU. But they were selling FUBU. <laughs> they were very professional, but it was like the mentorship I got, I learned professional sales. Mm-hmm. And it was a great learning experience for right. me because it became the base for everything else that I've been able to do in the rest of my career, myself and all my partners. Right. We're all from that era. And it's crazy because what we've always been known for as an organization is we're extremely professional, mm-hmm. well-organized. Yeah. Like, you know, when you start looking at businesses, that's that's one thing. Like, we've always paid everybody on time, mm-hmm. like clockwork. Mm-hmm. You know, we've always paid our reps their commission on time. Yeah. We've always had health insurance. We had health insurance when I had one employee, right? <laughs> Still. Yeah. We've had, we have a 401k. We match. Right. Like- you know, there's billion dollar companies that don't match with a 401k. Uh-huh. And that's the kind of stuff that makes me happy, right? Yeah. Like we get in there the day that we got a 401k, I was like, damn, we're a real company. Right. Like things like that. These yeah. are the kind of things that get me high, uh-huh. right? And it's- That came from that era. It came from that era. From pro- that era like yeah. understanding that you needed to be professional or, you know, when people mm-hmm. come to work for us, it's like we would tell them this is not a job. Mm-hmm. It's not a hobby. This is a career. And if you're going to tell people that this is a career and you want them to treat their profession as a career, then you need to give them career benefits. You know, yeah. Social Security is not going to be there when they get old. Mm-hmm. So we encouraged everybody to invest in their 401k. Mm-hmm. We, you know, health insurance is an option. Yeah. We encouraged everybody, like, you need health insurance. Right, you don't right. know what's going to happen. Like, that money that you're trying to put in your pocket, don't worry about that right now mm-hmm. because if something happens to you and you can't go to work, you're going to be screwed. Yeah. So these are the kind of things, you know, we're like mentors and life coaches and, you know, and, it's it's important, and I feel like a, a good base for that came from being around all these professional salesmen, these right. gentlemen that I learned the business from. If you call a Garmento, an actual Garmento, a Garmento, is that a derogatory term? Uh, I no, just want to know. <laughs> I just want to know for my personal self. You know, is it? you know what? I don't. It's not a. It's they, not a derogatory term. They I've take never, it as a compliment. I've like, never. Yeah. I've never had anybody. Take it as, as being an offended, okay. as, an, as an insult. Okay. And what's interesting enough is, Jeff, you've been in this business a long time. There's not that many Garmentos left. No. The business has, has really changed. Yeah. The, the Garmento era is gone. It went to like an in-house sales era mm-hmm. where, you know, and a lot of that came because the brands had started getting so big. So when the brands get big, they just like, all right, we're not going to pay these guys anymore. We're going to take all the sales in-house. Yeah. Then you had like the sales agency era, right. which is, you know, when I moved to you New guys, York, yeah. that's when it became a sales agency. Right. And even then, you know, we, we would take something like, you know, I was inspired by like a Peter Mintz, mm-hmm. who used to be the Mecca salesman, who's one of the 
greatest salesman ever, right? I mean, Peter <laughs> Shout was out no Peter Vince. Yeah, Peter was the man, yo. And Peter's and, a Garmento. Oh, yes. Pure? Peter 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 okay. is a Garmento salesman, and he's still in the game. But right. see, Peter is still here uh-huh. and is still very much relevant. But what's interesting about Peter was the foundation. Peter started a, a, a men's sales agency mm-hmm. before. And he was a little early. Mm-hmm. And it goes back to gotcha. luck and timing. Luck and timing, yeah, yeah. He was a little early, and we came in and did it after. And, you know, he was actually inspiring to, to me and to us. And when we did it, our timing was just a better timing. Mm-hmm. He was probably two years too early, right. and it didn't work out as well for him back mm-hmm. then. Well, what the Garmentos were missing, even though they had all the professionalism, was the cultural aspect. And mm-hmm. as streetwear, urbanwear, even skate, you could say, started to come up, you couldn't have a, only a professional suit selling the stuff. You needed someone who could speak the language, right? Exactly. Yeah. So, like, I moved to New York at the end of 2005, signed the lease, and opened the first agency. It was called the Museum Group. So, this is pre foundation. Mm-hmm. So in 2006, it was the Was museum that with the group. same founders and partners? Myself and Antoine. Okay. So Antoine was still living in Virginia. Uh-huh. And I, I and I had moved to New York. And we were partners from the beginning. Mm-hmm. But then we officially became partners on paper about six months in. Mm-hmm. So it was me and him. You know, he was doing the the Southeast, which was the territory he always did when we were reps. And I was doing the Northeast and the Midwest. And mm-hmm. I and I had never been a Northeast rep. So although we had always been around in the business, yeah, I knew accounts in Philly. I knew PA. I didn't even know New York, New Jersey, Mm -hmm. Massachusetts. But I moved to New York, signed a lease, and opened a showroom, Mm -hmm. right? And and interesting enough, our first brand was actually Creative Recreation Footwear. Okay. And we actually had Creative Recreation Footwear before I moved from Virginia. So myself and Antoine had decided we, we were leaving RP55 at the same time. We mm-hmm. wanted to go off and do our own thing, mm-hmm. right? Well, even before that, one of the things that made me move to New York is Billionaire Boys Club, right? Why? <laughs> yeah, this is a funny story. <laughs> All right. So, you know, me being from Virginia Beach, I'm from the same city that Pharrell is from, yep. that Chad is from, uh, Pusha T. Mm-hmm. Me and him went to elementary school together. We went to junior high together. We're literally, his neighborhood is across the street from mine. Uh-huh. But I've literally known him since we were probably eight years old. Okay. And recently I just saw him, we, we were in Barcelona together. Mm-hmm. So it, it's crazy. But when Pharrell decided to launch BBC with Nico, mm-hmm. he hired a showroom called Select Showroom. Okay. And at that point, Select Showroom, Matt and Joy, they were the the best men's showroom pretty much probably in the world. They were more contemporary, not street. Mm-hmm. I was offended that we weren't the ones selling it. And the reason I was offended was because I was like, I'm from Virginia. Right. I love VA. Like, you know, the VA pride, the 757, like I have tremendous pride in where I'm from. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been selling and repping and been in this business. I should be the one selling Billionaire Boys Club. But the reality of the situation was I was a Midwest sales rep Mm -hmm. covering PA in the Midwest. No matter how good of a rep I was, I wasn't in the Northeast. I didn't have a global footprint. You know, nobody, you know. West Coast. Yeah, yeah. no West Coast, no nothing. So the reality is that's why I needed to move to New York. Mm -hmm. So part of what made me want to move to New York was I said, I should be selling this brand. Yeah. So what I need to do is I need to put myself in a position where the next time a BBC comes along, they're going to have to hire us wow. to sell it. 
that was really the driving force to driving not get, force to become globalized in a sense. Become yeah, they hit that everybody can't be Kobe. You got to right. be on the big stage. Yeah, and especially back then, if you weren't in New York, L.A., Tokyo, Paris, Milan, you weren't in fashion. It mm-hmm. wasn't you know you didn't have the internet like you had today. You yeah. couldn't do this from other places. Right. So literally moving to New York so that I could be on a stage big enough to be able to work on the brands that I want to work on. Mm-hmm. That that was that's so dope. Yeah. So that's. <laughs> That's Did that, you ever call out like Pusha T and Pharrell and like, why didn't you let me have it? You know what? <laughs> it's it's funny. I've I've told this story, but uh-huh. you know, actually we did uh play clothes. We launched play clothes for, okay. for Pusha. Oh, for Pusha. Okay. Yeah, we did that so for five, that, five and a half years. Okay. No, no, we had that and we launched it and we built it. Uh-huh. And you know, we're, we're actually, well, you know, Billionaire Boys Club, we and Ice Cream, we actually handle the US. Now we're, you we're do? partners. We're minority partners in the US distribution of the brand. So if you look at it, the you reason that I moved, so when it's all said and done, you got we it. ended up with the brand anyway. And yep. when we got involved with the brand, it was during a time when it was going through a rough patch, mm-hmm. when they were transitioning after Rock Apparel, and they were uh, you know, it, it was a time when it it was being kind of relaunched. Yeah. We were the ones that came in, cleaned uh-huh. up the distribution and relaunched the brand. So yeah, so it's just fitting that it ended up with us yeah. after all this time. But you know, that's the main reason that I moved to New York so that I could be on the biggest stage. But it was really that that yeah. made me want to do it. The fact that I didn't get this brand and I thought I deserved it. Dre is great because in an instant, he can take you down memory lane. I can tell you honestly, there are no cue cards and notes here when we met. Dre is pulling these gems right out of thin air. So Pharrell's BBC brand was white hot when it first came out. To paint the picture, it was early to mid-2000s and Nego's powerhouse brand, A Bathing Ape, crossed over to the United States. Now, there's always bape heads back then, even in the States, and some people were always in the know and well aware of its huge footprint in Japan. But when Nigo put a flag down in the U.S., it felt like an overnight sensation. I mean, who remembers a young kid Cuddy working behind the register in the Soho store? This all set the stage for a wider introduction for the rest of the country. Full zip hoodies, patent leather sneakers, all of this could be spotted on red carpets around the country. You would see the iconic Bape camo and you knew it was still hot and exclusive. This is pre-website and pre-wide distribution. Magazines, videos, performances, rappers, producers, and artists were rocking it all the time. We're talking huge names like The Clips, Kanye West, Lil Wayne, Jay-Z, and of course, Pharrell Williams. Through merely wearing it wherever he went and bringing Nego along to events, Pharrell played a major part in helping spread Bape throughout the States. So when news came that the two were teaming up for a new project called Billionaire's Boys Club and Ice Cream, you know people were going crazy before they even seen anything. And I can completely sympathize with how Dre feels about BBC here. This was something growing to become the next IT brand. And Dre was a VA guy. And Pharrell is a VA guy. And Dre grew up with Push. It's like it should have been a no-brainer to tap Dre to help manage this brand and distribute it. But alas, it all came down to business. Dre had the credibility, but did he have the chops not being based in New York City? Now, missing out on a big opportunity like this can drive you to set your work to another level. 
This is like athletes waking up and seeing that second place trophy on their mantle every single day. Some will say, great, I mean, I made it this far. Others will say, damn, I have some unfinished business and it's time to work even harder. For Dre, it was time to finally move to the big city, to be battle ready and on the same stage when that next opportunity came. That motivation for missing out helped Dre structure his agency so he'd be prepared for success. He turned an L into a W. What will drive you to do the same thing? Well, you got other stuff. So you got museum mm-hmm. and then creative wreck. Which yeah. So for people who don't remember, creative wreck that moment was like the oh, most amazing thing in footwear. Oh, and that's where this started. So I, I came out to LA, right? And it was my friend's birthday. He used to live in Playa del Rey's, uh, Maddie. And it was around, it was the LRG guys. It was creative recreation. And these guys were around. And what I always loved about LA was the entrepreneurial spirit. So I would come out there and people, because I had a reputation as being a good salesman. Mm-hmm. And they would always want to talk to me. And they'd be like, oh, Dre, so how's the sales? And I'm sitting here thinking to myself, like, y'all are talking to me like y'all own your own brands. Yep. Like, so I, I met the creative rec guys. Actually, we had met them before the trade show. Uh-huh. But then I came out there and I, and I talked to Rob Nan and uh, Josh Willis. And we started a conversation. And this is Creative Rec was small then. They were a sub-million dollar brand. Mm-hmm. They didn't have any representation on the East Coast. They had uh, my friend, um, Maddie. He was from Chicago. He was representing them like in the Midwest, but mm-hmm. pretty much the whole East Coast. So they agreed to hire myself and Antoine to do the Northeast and Southeast for them, and eventually the Midwest. Okay. So they hired two kids from Virginia mm-hmm. who did not live in New York to hire <laughs> to they, New York. <laughs> the Eastern half of the United States. Word. Now, when you look back, I, I told them, I was like, I would have never hired us. And we came highly recommended mm-hmm. by everybody they asked. But it really, when you think about it, mm-hmm. for what that brand became, and it ended up being the perfect thing for them because we were the right partners. So yeah. they hired us. I remember talking to them. Well, what are you guys? Are you guys getting a showroom? They're like, well, I was like, well, I'm getting my own showroom. It was like, all right, well, good. We'll just be in your showroom. <laughs> and literally, this is how it happened. So you figure from 2006, we did creative recreation from 2006 through the end of 2008. Okay. That brand went, it peaked at $33 million. In from 36, sub $1 million. From sub $1 million to $33 million in 36 months. Do you remember how much was on your half? I remember the last year uh-huh. that we were there. Well, the year before, 2007, it was about $18 million. Wow. And then from zero. From zero. <laughs> and then in 2008, the last year, and we only had the first half of the year. Yeah. Right? Just spring right. and summer, we had already had upfront bookings of, I think it was about $15 million. It was something crazy. And the brand was on fire. And, yeah. You know, and creative recreation kind of changed footwear. You mm-hmm. know, you had like lifestyle footwear brands. And you know it was it was creative recreation and it was clay yeah. and it was Supra uh-huh. like these were the three brands and I mean it took the world by storm you yeah. know it's so much for a fact you know the guys at Nike and Adidas they were like yo this brand we, we see out. it we're, yeah. yeah because the brand was bubbling it was on fire but that was our first brand for the agency for the museum group it, the first brand was creative recreation mm-hmm. the second brand was Crooks and Castles wow so and in creative recreation really established us. So that's luck again. You know, the first brand, regardless of the talent or whatever, right brand at the right time. Mm-hmm. And that was our first brand. Yeah. So immediately the reputation is, is established. Right. Now, Crooks and Castles is interesting enough because we were talking about Omar earlier, uh, Kiambao from Commonwealth. Yeah. 
happens to be from Virginia Beach. Okay. Now, I never knew Omar in Virginia, but I met him prior to me moving to New York. And mm-hmm. when I got to New York, uh, true story, I didn't even know what Hypebeast was. Omar told me what Hypebeast was. <laughs> I had no, he literally introduced me to Hypebeast, right? It's <laughs> funny. And, and yeah, so when I first moved to New York, yes, Dre Hayes from the foundation. <laughs> didn't know what Hypebeast Didn't know what Hypebeast was. As much it's as we're, in, yeah, back then. So you figure this was in 2006 and mm-hmm. Hypebeast uh, Hype Beast was around. Yeah. Yeah. Two, actually, 2005, it was around, right? Uh-huh. So it, it is interesting. He knew Dennis okay. Calvero. From, from own, founder of the Crooks. From, founder of Crooks and right. Castles. And Dennis came by my showroom, mm-hmm. him and Lonnie from Hells mm-hmm. and Bam. Like, you know, I've known all of them forever, right? Yeah. They, they came by and Dennis wanted to move back to LA because he had been living in New York and he wanted to really focus on Crooks and Castles. Mm-hmm. And Omar introduced me, and we ended up doing a deal where we became the salesman for Crooks and Castles. Now, we only did Crooks and Castles for about, I think it was about 18 months. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a disagreement with their their business partner, but Crooks and Castles grew fast. It grew yeah. to like $5 million in like 18 months. I mean, I don't know what size it was, but it was small. This mm-hmm. is like the beginning of it being like, like a real business, right? right? It went like, from like hand-printed yeah, when they had shirts the chain, to Yeah, like, the hand-printed shirts and they had the chains hoodie. Yeah. You know, so we were the ones selling it and, uh-huh. and the brand was on fire. So those were like my first two brands. Right. And it was crazy because to go back to the idea of being a professional salesman, right? Mm-hmm. We're the young professional salesmen that can talk to the young brand owners right. that are launching their brand. So people can talk to us and we look like them. Yeah. But we're professional. We understand how the business works. Right. And that's how we were able to get brands. So yeah. that was the beginning of that. But yeah, that was literally our first two brands. Wow. You know, we had several other brands. Hell's Bells was there. And mm-hmm. then in 2007, we took another floor in the building. And that's when my other two partners, okay. Daniel and Ari, left their companies. One, Ari was at PRPS Denim and mm-hmm. Daniel was at this company called In Denim We Trust that was distributing brands in the United States. And they left... And they formed a company called the Vanguard Group. So okay. it was a museum and Vanguard. So people used to refer to us as Museum Vanguard. Uh huh. Yeah. And we have so much mutual respect for each other. We decided, you know what? We're all good salesmen. We'll start a business together. And that was the whole idea. So even when Vanguard Group and Museum Group started, mm-hmm. we already had Creative Wreck and Crooks and Castles. Yeah. And they were starting something. And the idea was to eventually merge everything together. So wow. the first brand we did together was WeSC, the okay. Swedish brand. Yeah. So, and we were still Museum Vanguard, but we set up a separate company. And that was the first time that we hired two employees that we both paid for. Uh-huh. And that was the beginning. And slowly over time, we started merging everything together. We had Mosley tries for eyewear. Mm-hmm. We ended up with G-Shock watches because right. we, we were the, uh, we used to own the distribution. We're partners in the uh, distribution for lifestyle for G-Shock watches. In case, yep. like all of these brands, they were all going into the to the pot together of of museum of vanguard museum vanguard but there was no foundation yet yeah it was just we had a company i can't remember what it was called uh-huh. the llc or whatever, the llc right. because the brands just existed on their, their own under the organization right yeah. so in 2009 that's when we officially changed the name to the foundation okay and it was during that time you know we were finally reached a point we were financially in a place where like all right we can merge all the books right mm-hmm. So we had to come up with a name. Mm-hmm. So we had the museum group and we had the Vanguard group. Well, 
the museum group was a better name than the Vanguard group, but their their logo was <laughs> in your really humble cool. opinion. In my humble opinion, but <laughs> Vanguard is not bad. No, no, it's not bad, but it sounds like a law firm, right? <laughs> and it was it was funny because we need to come up with a name. This is like the new beginning yeah. for all four of us together, right? So we're trying to come up with a name, right? Uh, I think one of the names I came up with was the firm, and and <laughs> shout out AZ, yeah, yeah, the firm. Well, you know what it was in my mind, I wanted a name. That had power because uh-huh. back then that was when Heroes was on NBC, and you remember the Nemesis was the company, uh-huh. right? Yeah, I like the firm because it's not agency, it's not anything else, it's mm-hmm. just the firm, right? All the powers in the name, right? Right? So I came up with this name, the foundation, and my partners, I don't love it, nobody really loved it, uh-huh. but. We weren't coming up with any other names. <laughs> we actually challenged all our employees. We said, you know, if anybody comes up with a name, we'll give you $500. Yeah. So everybody was submitting names. And literally, there were no other good. really name, good <laughs> names that came up. So you're so by default. <laughs> so mine ended up winning, but I really loved the name. And, it, you know, they all kind of liked it, but they didn't love it. Mm-hmm. And you know what? It turns out it ended up being a great name. And the name is a powerful name. It actually fit what right. I wanted for it, the foundation. You don't have to add any other word to it. And it yeah. has authority and it means something. But that's literally how the name came. And that's when we all came together. That's dope. <laughs> how You mentioned some of the different ways that salespeople got compensated back then. Some mm-hmm. were salaried plus commission. Some were commission only. Mm-hmm. As the foundation group, how were you billing your clients? So we would get commission because we were the agency of record. Yep. We built a company where all of our employees were in-house salespeople. Okay. So they get a salary uh-huh. and they would get a, a percentage of commission mm-hmm. and we would pay all their expenses. Okay. And this was a very expensive way to, to build an agency. Yeah, because you have fo- to pay their salaries even before they get any sales. Yes. Right. Yes. <laughs> then so when they get sales, you got to pay a little bit more. We got to pay the commission and we have to pay all their expenses. Right. And we have to do all of this before the company even pays us. Because remember, you're a commission sales rep. Whatever you're selling this season, right. you're not really getting paid at least for six months ahead of time because it's in the next season. Don't some showrooms charge rent? Yes, you charge a showroom fee. So we okay. would get showroom participation fee. But that I mean, literally that, that, just covers rent. It doesn't even cover rent most oh, okay. of the time. Yeah, okay. but yeah. my rent, you know, a showroom <laughs> participation fee is normally between 1000 and let's say it could be up to $2,000, $2,500 a month. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you got New York City rent. It's yeah. not covering rent. Right. Right? Um, so you're floating the, money a lot. Like you Oh, were, yeah. It's, yeah. It's very expensive to run and operate a showroom the way we were doing it. But the reason why we did it this way was because the last thing... I ever wanted any of our employees to worry about is how they're going to eat. Mm-hmm. You know, I always, it's like the Mark Cuban approach. And you approach. want the best, yeah. It's like the Mark Cuban approach, right? If you think about Dallas Mavericks, it's always the joke, like Mark Cuban was this great owner because all of his players always had the best everything, yeah. their locker room, everything. All they need to do is go out and win. Mm-hmm. They have no excuse. To me, that's what it was. We would buy our employees a Mac. Everybody mm-hmm. came in, it was all Apple environment. Everything's Apple environment. But back then, everything was an Apple right. environment. We exactly. buy everybody a Mac <laughs> or, or, or we would co-op a Mac with them. Uh-huh. So they would pay for half of it. We would pay half of it. But uh-huh. it was theirs. They got to keep it. Yeah. We would pay their salary, pay their commission. Mm-hmm. Um, they had yeah. health insurance. We paid their expenses. And so really, we just want you to go out and sell. Right. Because if anybody hired the foundation, it was a reflection of us, right. right? You knew what you were getting. So the work was very consistent. Yeah. If we would have farmed out some of the work to, let's say, other outside reps, mm-hmm. then the product could potentially be diluted. Yep. The brand, like the brand name, the foundation brand would be diluted. <laughs> the, 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 
and not, the not product the work, that they're selling. The work product. Uh-huh. Because with regional reps, sometimes they might have a micro view, right? Yeah. As most people do. Because like, all right, if you're the Midwest rep and your territory is only the Midwest and you have different retailers that cross over into different territories, you don't care about who comes into your territory. You only care about the retailer that's in your territory. And if this chain of stores is based here mm-hmm. and then they got stores in the Southeast and here, you don't care how many doors they open in the Southeast. You just want to make your money. Yeah. Well, it's the way that we operated yeah. as an agency, because we would have the whole territory and all the reps work for us, we could keep the strategy very consistent. There was no independent factors that was changing the way the strategy, the sales strategy of a brand was going to operate. Yeah. So having this in-house sales structure was what made it work properly. You think back at Dre's career, and there wasn't one thing that he experienced that he didn't learn from and apply later down the road, whether it's buying or sales or the value of being able to talk about the culture surrounding these brands. Each point made him a more savvy salesperson and also a smarter business owner. If you want success out of your employees, you have to be able to set them up for success. That's professionalism 101. And it actually tracks back to his days with the Garmentos. Even when it was just one employee, he made sure everything was taken care of so that they can focus on their job. I give him major props for that. You're only as strong as your team. And when the emphasis is building the foundation with people who are sharp thinkers and really know these brands and the industry, that is critical. Building the team is one thing, but taking care of them properly is a whole different ballgame. In the beginning of this podcast, you said that there was a 2.0 iteration of the foundation group, right? There was a yeah. new definition. And yeah. you said that you actually own some brands now. You have equity in brands. Well, that's not 2.0. Well, what point? Okay, so no, <laughs> that's no, no, 1.5? No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. So 1.0, it was sales and sales, consulting. Yep, which is where we're at now in the story. Yeah, yes. Yeah. 2.0 was... When we started setting up, so when we got a brand like Super Sunglasses, uh-huh. I mean, we Which haven't done Super brand. Yeah. yeah, we were there at the beginning. We yep. launched Super Sunglasses. We did it for the first five years. They actually wanted us to be the distributor. Mm-hmm. Now, at that time, we didn't have the financial backing. We, we weren't self-financed well enough where we could distribute a brand like right. Super. Plus, when we examined their price points... It didn't make sense to bring it in as a distributor, take distributor margin, jack the prices up. The prices really needed to be as close to the prices in Europe as possible. Mm -hmm. So we went to RP55. We set up RP55 as a logistical partner, super owned their business in the U.S. So they technically owned the stock and we handled the sales and we managed the brand. Okay. So we technically acted as a distributor, uh-huh. but we didn't have the financial or the logistical responsibility. So yes. we did that with Super. We did that with Zound, you know, Urban Ears, uh-huh. Marshall Headphones, a Home Audio. Uh-huh. We had a shoelace brand, Mr. Lacey. We did, we did it with several brands. And what did RP55 get out of that? RP55 took a fee. For the logistics. For the logistics. So okay. it was like, uh, like in, in a premium 3PL. Right. Because in addition to actually shipping the product, the way that 3PLs work, they would handle all the customer service, the mm-hmm. back end. So they allowed a company like Super yeah. to exist in the United States and right. own their business and never be here. Right. Super, in that instance, didn't have to pay for a warehouse, logistics nothing. team, nothing. It was all under RP55. Right. And they basically ran their US business from Milan mm-hmm. 
forever. Now, granted, they have a store in New York, they have a store in LA, but forever, they weren't here. Yeah. Same thing with Zound. Mm-hmm. And we worked with several other brands. So that was the 2.0 version. Okay. Okay. So we were like faux distributors. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, that's when the G-Shock deal came along. So when G-Shock came along, we- um Did the same thing? No, G-Shock was a little different. So we had went after G-Shock and we became the distributors for G-Shock, but oh. we couldn't afford- to buy, to, the goods. to buy those goods. Yeah. So we partnered with RP55. So RP55 was our partner and we were 50-50 partners uh-huh. on the distribution uh-huh. and they financed it. They paid for it. Mm-hmm. We did all the sales. We managed the brand and we ran it, but we didn't have any financial responsibility and we didn't have any logistical responsibility. Mm-hmm. So that's what I consider 2.0. It okay. was the beginning of us owning businesses. Now with Super, we didn't necessarily own the business, not financially, but we did own the business because it, it only existed because of how we set it up. Yeah. With G-Shop, we were actually partners in the business. Mm-hmm. We just didn't have to put any money up. Right. So that's 2.0. Okay. And then now you got 3.0. Yeah. Foundation 3.0 <laughs> is what we are today. Yeah. So we license, own, and distribute our own brands. Now, we still have our partnership with RP55 right. on Billionaire You still Boys do Club. all the other businesses. It's, yeah, it's like well, an evolution, Not, not right? all of them. Some Legacy. Like, BBC is a little different mm-hmm. because that really is a partnership. But, for example, Kappa. We're the yep. licensee of Kappa in the mm-hmm. United States. So we warehouse it. We ship it. We finance it. Mm-hmm. It's us 100%. No partners, no nothings. Then we have that brand. We also have K-Way. Mm-hmm. We're 50-50 partners in Rocket, okay. uh, you know, LA-based street, yeah. streetwear brand Basketballs, rooted in skate yeah. and basketball. So we're their partners. Mm-hmm. You know, our partners are Bam, Ryan, and Nico. They handle the creative. They handle the marketing. Yeah. We handle the sales, and we handle the finance, and we handle the operations. Okay. So th- that's another setup. Then in addition to that, we have some things on the, let's say, home goods space, lifestyle home goods. Mm-hmm. Like we have a water carbonator company. Like we sell the sexy version of SodaStream. It's called Arc. Okay. You know, and then we do some other things. This other company out of Sweden called Printworks. And these are things that we distribute in the United States. And you have equity in it, right? Well, the distribution. Yeah. We own the distribution. So for all intents and purposes in the United States, mm-hmm. Arc is owned by us. Mm-hmm. Printwork is owned by us. Mm-hmm. You know, we also have another brand called Magnaframe, which we own and we own the IP for. Yeah. But it's pretty much, it's just us being vertical. Right. That's the difference. So this is Foundation 3.0. Mm-hmm. This is part of the reason why I wanted to be in LA. Yeah. You know, we set up the operations on the West Coast. Mm-hmm. So prior to me moving out here two years ago. You know, why can't I, you do this on the East Coast? <laughs> um, I like the weather out here. Now, you know what it is? <laughs> LA, we, we could have did it on the East Coast. But uh, my brother is our VP of operations. Uh-huh. He's on the West Coast, so uh-huh. it's good to have him here. And you know what? The West Coast has this energy, man. I was trying to move out here, and you know, and I love New York. Mm-hmm. I lived in New York for 12 years. Mm-hmm. I'm from the East Coast. It'll always have a special place in my heart, right? But I saw it. Like th- there was this entrepreneurial spirit in-, in Cali, and you saw what was going on. You know, you saw all the celebrity, let's say like, all the musicians were moving here. Mm-hmm. You had the cannabis industry that was changing here. Yeah. You ha- you've had a lot of fashion moving west to east, yep. and this is happening for some time. Yeah. And then you have what's going on in tech here. It's just a different kind of energy here. And myself and all my partners, we were all in New York. Mm-hmm. So I was saying for a minute, I'm like, yo, we're losing money. We're not, none of us are there. There's opportunity. And one of my partners, Ari, who is actually moving here, 
on Monday. Okay. So <laughs> everyone's but, coming. Yeah, but he was gonna move here before I did. It was always the things like ah, oh, Ari would move, but you know he hadn't moved, and I was just coming out here, and I was like, you know what, I want to move. So the first time I tried to move, my partners didn't want me to move. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and granted, it was during a time for business when it really made sense for all of us to be together. But yeah. I really wanted to move, so they convinced me, so I stayed. But then I went, got a new house, stayed, and eventually. I just, it was still calling me. So I came in again. I was like, you know what? I really want to move. And nobody fought me then that last time. And when I first moved out here, we had a satellite sales office. Uh So, uh, you know, you're sitting in our office, the one that we're about to move from now. But back then, the most people we ever had that worked in our LA office was nine. Uh And the the office had contracted some, but it was about five or six people that worked here. Mm -hmm. Now we have about 25, 26. The business has completely changed because we've kind of built a secondary headquarters here because we were always headquartered in New York. Yeah. But with us going vertical, now you need all the operational staff. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have an in-house photographer. We, we had a photo studio. You have uh, your digital marketing team. Mm-hmm. You have, if you, if you own brands, whether you license, distribute, or own them, you need marketing people internal. You just right. need all these different internal people. You know, we run six websites now. So all of that staff is here. Mm-hmm. So what's interesting is, this is actually becoming a hub, right? And now New York is becoming more of a sales office. Now finance and administration is still in New York uh-huh. because our controller is, is there. How many people do you have in New York? It's about the same. So we're we're it's uh we're somewhere between I think it's fifty three or fifty five people right now. Okay. So it's almost even. But I've been here for two years. Yeah, and all of this is happening. All of this started happening from pretty much March of two thousand and eighteen. Mm-hmm. So that's how fast it's grown out yeah. here, and it's going to keep growing just because. The, the operational side of the business is growing. Licensing, distribution, and owning brands. Man, it is incredible to see how Dre has evolved the foundation over these years. You know, we're not all creative geniuses and designers, but that's really only one part in creating a successful brand. If you want to be part of that, I hope you're taking great notes here because this shows you can come from anywhere. You can study anything. But if you put in the hustle and the time, the results you could never even dream of may come true. Brands change, but more importantly, what customers want change too. People may love a particular clothing line because of its aesthetic, but what do you do when that in look becomes out? You have to evolve with the times as well. Think back when Dre first started until now. FUBU, Azore, Creative Rec, Hell's Bells, BBC, Super Sunglasses, G-Shock, Rocket, Kappa, Marshall Headphones. You can almost pinpoint the specific eras when thinking about these brands and when they reached a peak. These are multiple chapters in fashion and lifestyle. And through that, Dre evolved recognizing a need for a new type of sales agency, and eventually a need to change how they interact with brands. It's a reminder that the entrepreneur mindset does not and cannot stop. There is always more work to be done, and resting on your laurels will eventually lead to things stopping. As the world evolves, think about how you can provide something new. And as people demand more, Think about how you can step in to offer something new that the world has never seen before. But the reason why I wanted to to be in L.A., though, is, 
you know, when you're in New York, New York is like, it's like such a beautiful place, right? When you when you think about it like this, like well, yeah, it's gray and it's cloudy, but every you're in a, you're like running a hundred miles per hour all the time. Yes, and you don't get to stop. So I used to always come to LA, and I used to be like, "Yo, man, people are lazy out here." Yes, and 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 you know what? Like, yo, like what are they doing? They're on lunch. They're doing this, but you know what? I started to see, and this is before I moved there. I was like, you know what? They're not lazy. They're distracted, and it's because it's beautiful outside. It's sunny, uh-huh. and you know. The culture, life is just different out here. Whereas in New York, yeah, it's gray a lot. Even though it's sunny, you know, it's easy to stay in and work all day. Right. Also, not to say that the cost of living in L.A. isn't high, but I can tell you the difference between L.A. and New York. I know people that come out to L.A. and sleep on their friend's couch Mm -hmm. for a year to figure out themselves. Uh Don't really have a job. You know, just going through life, being creative, trying to figure out what they're going to do. Yeah. You don't know anybody in New York that does that. First nope. of all, most people don't have a couch. Nobody yep. has a place big enough to let anybody sleep on their couch that long. Yeah. So it's just, it's different. But I think what ends up happening, and even though there's so much creative energy in New York, I think the fact that people have time to stop uh-huh. allows them to create some other opportunities that I don't think get to happen as much in New York. And it's harder to do some of these things in New York. Okay. You know, And I even break down brands. Think about all the brands that have come out Jeff, yeah. as long as I've known you, let's think about streetwear. Look okay. at how many West Coast streetwear brands and the ones that actually ended up growing and getting bigger. Mm-hmm. It's been a lot tougher in New York, just the structure and how things yeah. are done. And even now, when you look at the You're brands right. that are coming out, it's a lot tougher. I never broke get- it down geographically. But if if you think about LRG, Obey, Crooks, Diamond, yeah, Hundreds, they've <laughs> I mean, become like, and I go to, I go to their, I'll go to Bobby's office and I'm like, fuck, yeah, this shit's got a skate park in it and you pay the same as I pay for my floor, oh, like my oh, one floor. I would even take it even further. Pleasures. You take Mike Sherman from Chinatown. Yeah. Mike, Mike, Mike lived in New York. York. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Mike came out here. Scraped in New York. Yeah, and, you know, came out here and just blew up. It's, it's different. And then you even look at the newer brands. Damn, you're making me feel bad about being in New York. No, no, no you know, you know what it is? I just it's just something I've seen. Yeah. There's not as many New York based brands that come mm-hmm. and, and and it's so much more challenging. It's harder there. And that's not to say it's not hard here. I'm not trying to oversimplify what's going on on the West Coast. Right. But let's say if you want to do domestic production. Yeah, you could call. You could run around all over downtown LA. Yeah, and find get cut and sew made, get T-shirts made. Now you could do that in New York. It used Mm -hmm. to be easier, but Mm -hmm. it was always really expensive. Yep. And the garment district, all the places that they're doing it is shrinking. Yep. You know, I remember our office on 39th Street. It was all fabric stores on the bottom. Now there's five coffee shops and a couple of bars and (laughs) a Skylark and, you know, and it's crazy. And then all the residential condos and all the parking lots they used to have in Midtown Manhattan in the garment district. All the parking lots are gone. They're turning them into hotels and condos. It's changing. So, And that was the place where you could go and get these things done. So where do you go get this done in New York? Out here in L.A.? You (laughs) You come to to L.A., LA, you can do it everywhere. You run all over the Inland Empire and the Valley, you can get production done everywhere out here. Mm -hmm. So I just think that's also created opportunity. That's why when you look at the roots of the world, you know, yeah. look, you look at roots, you God, look at yeah. fear of God, you they look at America, they yeah. all make it here. RTA, like you just mm-hmm. on and on and on. These brands are here and there's something here. All right, fine. You're, you're convincing me. Cause I used to be the guy that thought like, man, these guys take lunches for two hours, leave work at 4:45. I'm like, how do they get anything done? But you're right. Maybe they are 
thinking about bigger and better things instead of like trying to just win the rat race of like, I got to make this F train. <laughs> yes. If your whole thought process, think about New York, is kill or be killed, survive, survive, survive. Yeah. Right. So if the idea is, I just got to focus so much on surviving. I got to mm-hmm. focus so much on paying my bills. I got to focus so much on this, on that. All right. Where's the time? to go and do the things for you where you're going to push yourself. Yeah. And then there's a lot of entrepreneurial spirit and energy out here that's around you mm-hmm. when this is going on. Right. Um, which and also, you rub off on each and other. And rub off yeah. on each other. So that's how I've looked at that whole situation. And So no regrets leaving New York for you? Oh, man. You know what? Not at all. People ask me too. <laughs> they'd be like, yo, do you miss it? I'll be, I'll be honest. I don't miss it. You know what? I actually enjoy going back now uh-huh. even more. Because it's like going back when I was a tourist, right? Because you know what happens when you live somewhere, you start to take it for granted. And also when you live in New York, sometimes you get so busy, mm-hmm. as great of a city as it is, you don't even get to enjoy it as much because <laughs> right. you're home, you right. have so much work, so many obligations, so much responsibility. Yeah. You check out this thing like, no, nah, I haven't had time to check out this yeah, thing. Yeah, I haven't like- had time. I've been too busy. So now I get to go back to New York. I get to visit as, as like a tourist uh-huh. and it's great. I moved to New York. To start my business yeah. because it was what was best for my career. Right. And I loved being there and I was reasonably successful at building my business. Mm-hmm. And then it became time to move to another place, which is now LA, to follow the next chapter of my life. Right. Okay. So I want to ask you this question now because we're, we're heading into a point where a lot of brands are starting out and they're foregoing the entire retail landscape, right? Mm-hmm. They're going straight to e-commerce. Uh, that seems to be the buzzwords of what's happening if you start a brand, go straight to e-com, you only need to do D to C, you don't have to do wholesale, don't have to do a trade show, trade shows are collapsing, department stores are closing, shopping malls are dying. What does that mean? You must recognize this. What does that mean for your company? Well, that's part of the reason why we had the Evolve. So Mm -hmm. we saw vertical and direct-to-consumer e-com becoming more important. Mm -hmm. Well, if you're a commission sales agency, these brands, you're not going to get paid on the online sales for a brand. Nope. Now, granted, we did have a couple of deals because we were we were that good. <laughs> yeah. We had a couple of deals where we were able to actually put it in there where uh-huh. we got to eat on the e-com sales. Wow. You know, we had, nice. we had good contracts, <laughs> very strong. But, you know, that was also one of the reasons why we had to evolve. And really, what Foundation 3.0 is now mm-hmm. is what we were always supposed to be. We just kind of got distracted. We always just had great brands. We're working on stuff. So we just weren't really focused on doing it for ourselves. Yeah. But yeah, retail is changing. Yeah. So you got to evolve with it. I think in some ways it makes it easier to launch a brand now mm-hmm. because, you know, you can go direct to your customer mm-hmm. because sometimes the barrier between a brand and the end consumer is actually the retailers. Yeah. Sometimes the brand is good. The consumers want it, but you can't even get it to the consumers because you needed the stores to Mm -hmm. be able to get it to them. Now you can kind of bypass that. And I just think it's created a lot more opportunity. It's, it's, it's changed the landscape, but for like, let's say sales organizations, it's made it more complicated, but you still need sales. Somebody I know was starting a sales agency and people will come to me (laughs) and and they know they'll come to me and they'll say stuff to me like, well, I'm going to start to do this. But, you know, we're not uh, any competition to you or anything like that. And I would say, I don't even think about things in competition. I'm not looking at somebody else that's doing sales as competition to us. Mm-hmm. The reality is, 
there's so many brands. There's so much opportunity. Yeah. We're not really competing against each other for it, regardless of if my agency's at this level or agency's at that level, it doesn't matter. There, mm-hmm. there's All you got to do is walk through a trade show. It tells, tells you how many brands there are in the world, and there's still not enough good sales organizations right. to, to sell these products. Yeah. So like to me, I've never really looked at competition that way. So I tell people, you know what? You should go and pursue it. There's opportunity. Now, it doesn't mean it's not complicated and hard, mm-hmm. but it, it is changing the, the market some because, yeah, some of these department stores are closing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, retailers are consolidating. You yeah. know, the sneaker chains are merging. Yep. You know, there's so much consolidation. It looks pretty bad. Yeah, there's so much consolidation out in the market. Yeah. And you know, and for us as a company, Foundation 3.0, we've evolved. Yeah. Because the key to everything is evolution, right? Right. You know, you got to maintain relevance. Mm-hmm. As soon as you're irrelevant, you're out of business. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter if you're a designer, a musician, a brand, a marketing company, whatever you are, as right. soon as you're irrelevant, you're dead. Uh-huh. So the only way to remain relevant is to evolve with the game. And right. that's what we had to do. And I felt like as a company... The foundation has always evolved. Like even when we first started, we were probably one of the first agencies to really go and start selling accessories. We did tech accessories. You know, we we've moved into all these spaces. We did sunglasses. Yeah. We did watches. Right. Now, you know, now we're vertical, you mm-hmm. know, and this we needed to be here yeah. because this is the way you protect yourself. Do you foresee a day where there's no more trade shows and no more multi-brand stores? And everyone's just like e-com and their own stores and no trade shows. Do you think that's going to happen? I don't think that's going to happen. Okay. And, and but I'm, if you look at the last 10 years, it's well, like well, shrinking, well, shrinking, well, shrinking. So let's say trade shows. Everybody says trade shows are dead. I don't believe trade shows are dead. I just believe it's time for them to evolve. Uh-huh. So okay. what I mean- So they're not innovating, as you just said, like how innovation- You know what? You need something to happen, right? So for example- Part of the problem in the United States for trade shows was there was too many of them. Mm-hmm. There was too many markets. Yeah. Too often, too many. Too often, yeah. too many markets. One of the other problems you have, Vegas, the calendar is bad and it's been bad forever. The buy the deadlines yeah. are earlier. Mm-hmm. And that trade show is still at the same dates and times that it's been for like 20 years. <laughs> it needs to be earlier. Yeah. And that market actually could have been a good market. Actually, it's to the point now, I've been saying it to everybody that can listen, move the trade show to L.A., I think LA has the energy. Get out of Vegas. It's time for a monumental shift. Because when somebody tells me trade shows are dead, I said, okay, go to Paris during Men's Fashion Week mm-hmm. and tell me it's dead. But they don't call that a trade show. But it, but it, but it's but a it market. Is. It, really it is, is. It is a trade it show. Is. But Jeff, see, man, that's why I love talking to you, man. Like we, we like some OG guys. See, Jeff, you were at Paris mm-hmm. back when I used to go, and me and you, and maybe you see Chris Gibbs from yep. Union. Back when everybody was going to Barcelona and Berlin for bread and butter, you might stop over in Paris. Yeah. And then it was real designer fashion, fashion week. There, all these retailers are there. Like Paris Fashion Week was nothing like it is now. Milan either, mm-hmm. right? There was that kind of energy. All these retailers, Adidas holding their consortium conferences, yeah, yeah. like none of that existed, right? right. And the game has changed. It's evolved now. Back then, it was all about Berlin and 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 Barcelona, Barcelona yeah. and everybody was going there. But now it's all about Paris. So much to the fact that it's actually too much because it's uh-huh. not a trade show. It's all showroom appointments. The buyers are dying because they got so much business that they got to write in a and short amount of time. Around, yeah. They're running around crazy. They're they miss the convention longer. center. They're now. staying longer and longer. Oh yeah, they miss the convention center. Remember when Capsule Paris was there, and that was like a great show, and mm-hmm. then it kind of died down. But you know, so the trade show. 
aspect changed. Now it's about Paris. And now even Milan was always there, but Milan is becoming more important now because the buyers actually need to go to Paris and Milan mm-hmm. and then they do Tokyo markets. So yeah. they, they have to go to all these places. And some of that is a reflection of the brands that are driving the business in these retail stores. But obviously Paris is like a trade show and it's on fire. I, I would argue right now it's as hot as any magic could have ever been mm-hmm. during any heyday yeah. right now in that city. So that's the that's right the evolution. evolution. It's the right. evolution. So what, what's going to be next? I think there has to be some more market weeks mm-hmm. because Paris, based on the way it's set up, it's not enough time yeah. for these buyers to get everything done. Yeah. You know, I talked to the guys from Selvages. They got a team of 12 to 15 people and they're doing 12 appointments a day every day for like 10 days. Yeah. Like think about the pace. Yeah, they miss a trade show. A trade show was a much easier existence. <laughs> Three days, you could bang it all out. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. Right. Okay, so now let's say you're talking to a kid who's starting like Lonnie or Dennis from Crooks, day one kid. He's making less than $100,000 a year in printing his own t-shirts, making his own brand. What advice do you give that guy? <laughs> oh, do you today. say like, go at, go to a trade show? Do you say go to Paris Fashion Week? Do you say focus 100% on e-com and your social? Like, What do you tell him? You know what? It, it depends on what part of the market you want to market your brand to. Mm-hmm. So obviously, I think you should go to a trade show because you need to be in an environment where you can just see how the business of fashion is done if you're not familiar with it. Mm-hmm. you know, Even you def- if you don't want to do wholesale, you should still go and you see You should it. go. You should educate yourself. You should walk around like, look, you, right now, I feel like Paris has such an energy around it. You should just go to Paris to walk around so you can get the energy and feel what's going on. Mm-hmm. You need to see what's going on there. And But yes, walk around a trade show, even if that's not what you want to do, just so you can observe and see. Okay. And you never know. You learn through osmosis. You might meet somebody. Hey, you know, me or you might be having a coffee and somebody might walk up. And, you know, that does happen all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And and they start picking your brain or the fact that social media has made the world so small. Now, granted, my social media is really tiny. I'm not on there like that, but I've literally had people walk up to me. And a lot of this, like, it's funny because when Upscale Vandal, yeah. Mike used to always do his thing. And Mike would like put me on social media. And I've had people <laughs> run up on me like, Mr. Hayes, not even Dre, Mr. Hayes. I'd be like, whoa, Mr. Like, make me feel old. They'd be like, yeah, I saw you on Upscale Vandal Snapchat. Uh-oh. And... They, you know, and they would be like, look, man, I just really want to say uh, I appreciate what you're doing. And then, you know, sometimes somebody would give me something and, and I'm real friendly. I'll uh-huh. talk to them, you know, um, but as people may want to ask you for advice yeah. or or just learn about right. the business so that you're going to meet so many people. You're going to meet people. Yeah. yeah. So definitely now, depending on what kind of brand it is, if it was like if you want to do like some premium elevated streetwear brand, then maybe vertical is where you should go. Mm-hmm. But in order to even make that decision, you got to see that side of the business to know like, okay, I don't want to do this. I want to do that. But you got to educate yourself. You got, it's all about education. Yeah. And the only, and you know, the internet is a beautiful thing, right? It's like a encyclopedia at home and you never have to open a book and mm-hmm. you can learn. It's made the world so small. So you can learn about so many things so fast. Yeah. Right. But what it does sometimes is it takes away some of the experiences, in my opinion, that people would get, like the physical experiences in real life, yeah. in real life uh, of being able to interact with somebody. It doesn't mean you can't interact on the phone, but some of these experiences, because people will sit in their house yeah. and they won't leave the house, and there's so much you can do from home. Mm-hmm. But also going to get those experiences, yeah, because you can look at Paris online, and you could look at, like right now, you don't even have to go to the fashion shows. Yeah, You, you, you could, you could sh- look yeah. at all the fashion shows. Now, granted, I used to go to more fashion shows. I don't really go to them that much anymore because I can see what's there. But you know what? That's not the most important part of going to Paris for me. 
I like going to the showroom appointments. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, I go, I party. Everybody knows I party like crazy. But <laughs> but it's you know I definitely have a good time. Yeah, you know, you know, dancing <laughs> on furniture with with my black white beater on on no cars doubt. <laughs> on cars. <laughs> yeah, you know, hey man, I got a rep. Hey yo, but it, but it's funny. But being in these environments, yeah. That's it's actually where the important. magic happens. That's look, where it happens. Yeah, yeah. yeah, look how many deals get done over drinks uh, at totally. the bar, yeah. you know, outside, mm-hmm. you know, talking. Like, even this. Look, me and you sitting together. Remember, we were sitting in Paris yep. having at, dinner. At dinner. And you're like, you know what? I got to get you on the podcast. It was like two year, years, yeah. two <laughs> two years, years ago. Yeah, yeah. yeah but, it, but it's crazy because that's when these, these things happen, right. you know. And, and you, you mentioned people living life through their phone or social media. What happens is if you get really good at that, when it comes time for you to like sit and have dinner and break bread with someone, you kind of forget the skills of like human interaction, you know, like you become awkward. Yes. And, and it does. It happens. You know, it's interesting. I look at social media and I applaud people that because mm-hmm. it's really a gift how people can be good at that and, and really creative people out that could take great pictures. I stink <laughs> at it. I'm not good at taking the pictures. <laughs> right. And, you know, and, and my team, they're always like, Dre, you should post more because, you know, anybody that knows me, uh-huh. that, that knows me, they know that I travel all the time. I'm on a plane. I've been like yeah. a, a ton of play. People hit me up to be like, yo, Dre, where should I go in this city? And, you know, just around interesting things all the time. And I, I do document some things for myself, but uh-huh. I don't post them because right. I love the moment. Right? right. So I love living in the moment. Like there's been things I've been around where. You know, I should have, man, maybe I should have recorded that, you <laughs> right. know, and then it's trending the next day uh-huh. all over the world. But for me, I'm so much about the moment and enjoying the moment. And I'm just not good at that part. Yep. And then I, and you know, and maybe because I'm old school, but I can't say that because there's plenty of old school guys that's really good at it. So it's not, <laughs> it's not even that I knock people for it because I actually see it as a gift. Now, sometimes you go to a party, like, you know, I, you know, you go to like Revolve Fest during Coachella, which is actually a great party. But when you look around and you just see phones and everybody yeah. doing it, you're just like, wow, like, are you enjoying the party? Yeah. Like sometimes that experience of trying to document it is taking away from the actual experience. Yeah. And I wish people would just live in the moment more, enjoy right. the experience instead of trying to work so hard to document it. Yeah, exactly. Well, you had a great quote. I want to quote you on this. It was at that dinner two years ago. Uh-huh. You walked in and you said, thank God I'm not the coolest guy in the room because the coolest guy in the room is the brokest guy in the room. Yeah. Explain <laughs> that quote, please. Uh, so it's funny <laughs> because, you know, coming out of streetwear, right, and, and working with different brands, and, and, and I know you can remember this, especially let's talk about the commercialization uh-huh. of streetwear, right? When it, when it was, cause like, especially when I first moved to New York in 05, 06, 07, that was like, it was not commercial yet. Mm-hmm. All the brands were small. There were no big brands. Everybody was small. Yeah. And then you had like the older statesmen in the business and they were the real cool guys. And some of the young guys that were coming up, they would like hate on them sometimes. And you know, and these dudes would be the coolest guys. Who was the, the older statement? Like, can you name some brands um, that were like, like the top of streetwear at oh, the beginning of streetwear. Oh, I, I mean, well, Supreme. Uh-huh. Stussy, a, right? Stussy, A-Life. Mm-hmm. I mean, you even have brands like Fresh Jive and Fuck, which are like the OG brands. Yep. But during that point in time, mm-hmm. Stussy was still there. A-Life was like, A-Life and Supreme, interesting enough, and most people don't even realize this right now. There's so many people that are probably listening to this don't even know what A-Life is. Yeah. 
Yo, A Life and Supreme mm-hmm. back at that point were like neck, neck and, and neck. neck. They yes. were the same level brand. Agreed. Which, which, and if you look at it today, and shout out to A Life because I still love A Life mm-hmm. as a brand, but I mean, Supreme is Supreme, you yeah. know, at this point. But they were the same brand, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, you know, th- these were the, the guys that were there, and there were other brands too. Uh, like arguing them from Acapulco Gold. There was a mm-hmm. lot of guys, and then you know, used to have the clientele guys. And then uh, what was the store that uh, Stash and them had? Uh, Recon, Nord. Recon, and Nord. Yeah. You know, you had all of Chris these. Gibbs, like, yeah, yeah, you had all these. Yeah, Union was mm-hmm. around. You had all of these OG guys. And I'm not saying that these these guys are the brokest guy in the room, but what I'm saying is there was an attitude sometimes where the the real cool guy. Mm-hmm. Would be like bitter at the world in the corner as the as the game started to commercialize, mm-hmm. and I used to always look at it and it's like, you know what? I don't want to be that dude. Yeah, I don't want to be the coolest dude in the room because uh-huh. that motherfucker is broke. <laughs> I don't want to be that guy. You know what I'm saying? I, you know, it, you know. I used to always oh, a joke. I used to crack like you know. Mark Echo was around, and you know what? And even though Echo had become a very commercial brand, mm-hmm. people that really know know what that dude has contributed right. to this game. But Mark Echo wasn't that. Cool, hard guy in the corner no, with his arm folded. No, Never. he was yeah. no, he was the guy that pulled up to the party in a Ferrari, <laughs> and I would be like, "Yo, that shit is cool." You know what I'm saying? Like right, that right. was Mark Echo, and, but, and the cool guy would be like, "Man, fuck Echo, fucking Mark." Yeah, right. But it's but, like, yeah, yeah he's he was going home in a helicopter. Exactly <laughs> right, and, and you know what? And when Echo first came out. That was the streetwear brand during the urban era because it was a different looking brand. I was mm-hmm. like, you know, you had Echo, you had PNB Nation. Mm-hmm. Um, shoot, I'm trying to think. Triple, Triple Five, Five Soul. Soul. Yeah, those were the brands. Yeah. Those three brands. Those were the streetwear brands there. And and all of them actually had some sort of commercial aspect mm-hmm. to them. Yeah. And, you know, and then you just look at what somebody like Mark has contributed to the culture, you know, yeah. and people kind of forget about it, mm-hmm. you know, or, or don't pay attention to it, you know, but it's real. Right. The contributions were made. Yeah. Or, you know, or even if you take a brand like LRG, mm-hmm. which was, you know, and some people say, well, that's not streetwear, you know. It was at the turning point, in my opinion. It was at the turning point. Where, yes. You know, you talked about Supreme and A-Life. Like yeah. there was a, that moment of LRG's time, it was hotter than Supreme. Yeah, at that point, Yo, if you, Supreme think about, was like, yeah. Think about every artist that was coming out, Kanye, Kanye every Fat like Joe. They, yeah, everybody yeah. had a had a LRG mixtape. Mm-hmm. Every producer that was coming out was coming off a of LRG photo shoot. Yeah. I mean, they were making that. Now, granted, it was a it was a commercial version of of what this is, but they were doing it. Yeah, and you know, and, and Jonas and Rob. I mean, look, they made a contribution, man. And yeah. you know, and you can't take that away from people. Like right. I'm one of those people where I'm like, look, man. You got to give props where props are due, like respect to people that have been able to do something in this game. Mm-hmm. I, have a, I have a good Mark Echo story because, you know, people forget his contributions. It's, there's Mark Echo, but then there was G-Unit, New mm-hmm. York, fucking Complex Magazine, Complex, Complex Con. Complex Media. Complex Media, right. <laughs> and I remember the f- when, when he did the first Complex Con, I saw him backstage and dude was in tears mm-hmm. because I think... In some ways, he had always been that guy that like was never fully accepted by the cool crowd. Yeah. But at ComplexCon, he finally merged it all together and became the cool guy, the orchestrator, and he could still drive home in the Ferrari if he wanted to. Yeah. And it, he he made it, and you could see like the redemption. It was so dope to see. Look, it's real and. For us that have been around, I remember buying Echo. I remember what Echo was when it first launched, how different and dope it was (laughs) than anything else that was out. You had Echo, 
And you had Triple Five Because mm-hmm. PNB Nation was there And look And it was cool But Echo and Triple Five Were just doing something Completely different yep. man Yeah Yeah Props to those pioneers Listen Don't be that cool person I repeat Do not be that cool person Some of the biggest movers and shakers are those who have the smile and are willing to chop it up. Streetwear has had a history of attitude and being too cool. And we live in a social media era where we see everything that everyone's doing. You can flex all you want on the gram, but damn, be able to hold a conversation in person, please. As per Dre's advice, Just as much as it's important to go to the trade shows and learn and see the business and go to Fashion Week and experience that energy and rub shoulders, you won't gain a thing if you're that quote-unquote cool person standing against the wall giving everyone else a standing shit face. As Dre mentioned, this podcast you're listening to wouldn't have happened if we didn't chop it up one late night in Paris. And if you listening to this episode is going to take one grain of information to then build the next empire from it, that butterfly effect, that is what it's all about. Work hard, don't fuck people over, and be cool. Just not that cool, you know. All right, man. Well, this is this has been amazing. Great trip down memory lane. You got any other last words of advice for for people? Oh, man, you said last words of advice. Let me think about something real quick. Yeah, yeah. You know, in this business, I always say, like, work hard, play hard. And, you know, it sounds cliche. You know, people get caught up. This is a game. So it's industry. This is like a glitzy, glamorous kind of industry. Mm-hmm. And people start partying and hanging out and not working. And that's that's the where the professionalism part comes in. You mm-hmm. got to be professional. You got to get your job done. Mm-hmm. You know, work hard, then play hard. Mm-hmm. Some people get it mixed up. They want to play and then they don't want to work. Yeah. And then also one of the other things I always say, man, sleep when you die. Yeah. Why you in here? You need to hustle. You need to get it done. And I mean, and that's everything. That's live, travel, enjoy, mm-hmm. bust your butt, do whatever it takes, but, you know, experience everything you can now. Because one day, you're not going to be able to do it. Like, I, I think about it. Like, I'm, I'm 42 years old now. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember when I was the youngest dude in every room. I mean, I was in the business. I was I was a buyer at 18. Yeah. I was, you know, I was a super young rep when it was all older reps. Everywhere I went, I was the youngest dude. I was the youngest dude by 20 years. And all of a sudden, I was the youngest dude by 10 years. And all of a sudden, one day, I wasn't the youngest dude anymore. Mm-hmm. And in so many rooms I'm in now, I'm not the youngest dude anymore now. You know, I'm not that old. I'm still relevant. But it just shows you how how it can change. Yeah, yeah. You know, how you can go from being the youngest dude to the oldest dude in the room. Yep, in the blink of an eye. All right, man. Well, thank you so much for your time. Oh, man. Thank you, man. Thank you very All much. Right. Peace. <laughs> Hey, thank you for listening to this super educational episode with Dre Hayes of The Foundation. As always, you can find out more about the show and listen to other episodes at hypebeast.com slash radio. We are now at almost 500 reviews and a 5.0 rating on Apple Podcasts. Please keep shouting us out. Tell us what you think of the show. I truly, truly appreciate it. Also, do me one solid and just tell one friend about this episode. Maybe it's someone you know who's not a designer or an artist, but dreams of getting into the fashion or design industries. I have a feeling they're going to thank you for this recommendation. 
We also occasionally answer listener questions on the show. So if you have a question, shoot it over to me on Twitter. I'm at Jeff Staple. The Business of Hype is created in collaboration with Bright Young Things. You could check out their work at byt.nyc. Our director is Daniel Nabetta. Our audio engineer is David Rogers Berry. Our audio interludes are composed by Gabe Darling. Our associate producers are Sydney Pacumpra and Christina Hong. This episode was recorded live on location at the Foundation headquarters in downtown Los Angeles. And after this recording... I might have to consider spending some more time out there. I am Jeff Staple. You've been listening to The Business of Hype on Hype Beast Radio. Hey.